dark and dusty drapes Let in some light Tell the billboy come and get my trunk Cause I'm leaving here tonight Hey everybody and welcome back to a new episode of Meryl Streep and the Movies with Zachary Scott Johnson and Meryl McNally. How are you this afternoon, Meryl McNally? I'm good. How are you, Zach? I'm pretty good. We're uh, starting this crazy idea here, the five consecutive posts. Yeah. The COVID-19 challenge. The COVID-19 challenge. We're doing it. <laughs> we've got some interesting uh we've got some interesting ones lined up as well for this <laughs> little run uh today we're talking about into the woods and um well you know usually we start by saying you know like what have you been up to what have you been watching have you watched anything that's particularly interesting in the last couple weeks it hasn't been that long since we last chatted but Oh, I binged watch Normal People on Hulu. Excellent COVID-19 watching. Highly recommend it. Okay. Um, That's a sexy one, right? Totally. <laughs> it looked very Fifty Shades of Grey to me. You know, it's not at all. Okay. I, I would say that there's quite a bit of nudity, but I I don't think it's as... I don't think it's as racy as everybody says it is, but it may be because for me, like it's integrated with the story. It's mm-hmm. not superfluous. It plays it plays a major role in the story, so it works. And I find most of it very benign and sweet. Okay. That's good. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Most of it. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, no, but it's it's based on um a book by Sally Rooney, which is also very good if um, if listeners are interested in reading it, I would highly recommend that as well. So that's a good like quarantine watch. Um, sure. Very juicy stuff. Episode episodes are like thirty minutes long, so it's a super fast watch too. It's twelve episodes. Um, what else? Oh, I watched the first episode of Ryan Murphy's Hollywood. How was that? Speaking of sexy, I heard that one is actually quite gratuitous as well. Amazingly, I did not. I should have. You know, I love Ryan Murphy and I know his stuff pretty well. So I should have guessed. I think because it was on Netflix, though, I didn't quite connect the dots with, um, you know, content and how much further the content would be pushed. And I turned it on with uh, my dad, who is, uh, you know, a 70 year old like rancher cowboy man. And um, it was it was a little racy. I would say that I felt uncomfortable. <laughs> I, I've read, I actually am kind of avoiding that one. I've read a few things of people finding that one to be um, kind of very stereotypical in some not great ways and that he's kind of pushing lines for the sake of pushing lines more than kind of doing it from an art. I don't, again, I haven't watched a second of it, but um, I've read enough about it that has made me kind of not as interested as I actually have been meaning to get to his The Politician miniseries, um, although that wasn't received all that well either. Right. Um, but I'm at least curious about that one, whereas this one just seemed like it was more shock value and not really any substance from what I was reading. I can't pass judgment yet because I've only seen the first episode. 
I would say that at least the first episode, I didn't realize going in. I had seen the trailer from the show, but I didn't, I haven't read a lot about it and, or at all really. And I didn't realize that a large part of the inspiration for the show was Scotty Bowers, who was a gas station attendant slash prostitute slash um, pimp in Hollywood. And I remember, I can't remember how far back it was, maybe 10 years ago, he came out with all of these stories about stars he had, um, uh, you know, had had affairs with. And of course, they were all dead. So nobody could verify or not. Right. right. And um, but the, the minute I started watching the first episode, I realized right away, I was like, oh, there's a gas station. And oh, oh, yeah, yeah. And it all sort of clicked in. Um, and it is quite sort of flashy in its gratuitousness. Um, it's very flashy in a Ryan Murphy way. Yeah. I didn't not enjoy the first episode. I enjoyed it a lot. The actors that they cast are very charismatic and, and fun to watch. And I don't know. I'm going to, I'm going to keep, I'm going to keep watching. I'll watch the whole thing and I will give you my final review when I'm done. Yeah, there we go. So you are going to keep watching it. He's got, um, a couple other things coming up that are interesting to me. Um, well, the prom is one of them, of course. Um, and I guess this is maybe a good segue. I did have a couple of things I was going to mention too, but just tangentially, there is a bit of Merrill news regarding the prom, um, which is, I don't know if you saw this, but he was doing some sort of interview, uh, Ryan Murphy as promo, I think for Hollywood coming out. Um, and they asked him about the prom. They were asking him about these other projects, uh, that he was, that he has kind of in the pipe. Um, and the prom is still good to go for Christmas day. I guess they had wrapped principal photography. He said the old, there was about two days worth of second unit, uh, footage that they were hoping to get. Um, and so he was saying that he hoped that sometime within like August or September or October, they could just get a crew out and do a couple days worth of film, but it didn't require any of the actors to be there. It must just be, um, establishing shots or something like that. Um, so they are still forging ahead. You know, there's kind of everything's up in the air right now, just like everything else in, in other aspects of life. Nobody kind of knows what's happening with a lot of things, but, uh, the prom had wrapped enough footage or essentially everything. So they are still set to go, which is good news because, you know, there are a lot of things that are being postponed and being, um, you know, pushed around this is not the thing that matters during COVID-19. But I do find myself wondering with all of these um, things being pushed around, yeah. what effect, I mean, again, this really like of all the things that matter, this is not one of them, but you know, this is the kind of year where maybe some people might get nominated for things they wouldn't ordinarily be nominated for just because the competition is going to be, you know, sparser. Yeah. This is assuming that they actually continue with award ceremonies, which is, you know, maybe they'll do it in a different way or maybe they won't do it at all. But, uh, you know, for what it's worth, I uh, I don't know enough about the prom to know whether that would be a, a, a like major awards player or not. It seems like a Golden Globe, you know, thing. Maybe I don't know if it'll be Oscars buzz or not. I mean, you never know. Yeah. No, it's interesting you say that because. um I just attended a panel discussion on Zoom, obviously. Um, and one of the speakers was Beatrice Springhorn. She's the VP of content development at Hulu. Oh, 
mm-hmm. and she she was saying that the audience response to normal people, the show I was just telling you all about, um, was like much greater than they anticipated. Like they were hoping it would be a success. They knew it was good. They didn't expect it to be, you know, one of their most popular shows. And the, the point of the panel discussion was really to talk about the partially to talk about the effect of COVID-19 and what people are really wanting to watch now. And, um, and then also sort of looking forward to try and develop content for when we are out of this, because anything that goes into development now is obviously going to come out after and audiences tastes will change. And I think you're right. I think we're going to see a way different pool of, of nominees and content based on this situation, not just because there's less, but because tastes are so different while we're in this shelter in place quarantine situation. So it's going to be really interesting to see what happens. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, I watched a few things this, these last couple of weeks. It's been what, two weeks since we last recorded something like that. Two and a half, something like that. Um, Last night, I uh, watched Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Speaking of Hulu, that's on Hulu. Have you heard I've, of this one? Yes, I've heard amazing things about it, and I've been meaning to watch it. I liked it. I thought it was good. It was uh, it was slow. You know, uh, it's not a, <laughs> there's, I don't know, 10 people in the whole movie, and it really is really a three-character piece. Um, I watched something else like that, or maybe we were talking about something like that else recently where it was like, wow, this movie only has, you know, 10 people in the whole thing. Um, the lighthouse was kind of like that. Maybe mm-hmm. that's what we were talking about. Um, it was good. It was very good. Um, I would, I would give that one a thumbs up. The other ones that I saw, I I'll move through these quickly. They, uh, probably wouldn't get big thumbs up anyway. I saw the invisible man, that Elizabeth Moss, um, oh, yeah. thriller. It was fine. I just, you know, the thing that I was kind of worried about was glorification of like, you know, spousal abuse, like domestic violence. Yeah. I mean, like even in the trailer, that's kind of what it seemed like. And it is and it isn't. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. I, I guess this is semi-spoilerish, but it also, I can't imagine they would make this movie and not have it be that the guy, you know, gets his comeuppance. You know, it's not like he gets away with it in the end. Uh, but you know, still, it's a little bit of, I don't know, I just felt like, I don't know if I really want to, if I really want to watch this. There are some unpleasant moments and unpleasant scenes in it, for sure. I think one of the things that had been, um, I think, in a way, if you're going to make a movie about that, right, like an invisible person and like what they would do, it's kind of an interesting choice, I guess, to make it about that. Um, But I guess in terms of a revenge tale that I don't know it's not the least logical route for the movie to go um so have you seen the original oh no I didn't know it was a remake actually yeah so it's a 1933 film um it was directed by James Whale and it had it was Claude Rain's first film And I just, um, you know, I had seen it ages ago, but I just happened to, um, it was, I'm taking a film class on sound and image theory. And we, we watched this as part of the class. It was really interesting to see that. And then on the heels of that, the trailer for the new Invisible Man came out. 
and how different they are. I mean, in the original, he's a scientist. He's sort of your quintessential mad scientist and an experiment goes wrong and he makes himself invisible and he spends most of the movie trying to reverse it. And he's really driven to like start committing crimes because everyone is essentially terrified of him. It's almost like that Frankenstein effect. Did you ever see the Kevin Bacon movie Hollow Man from the late 90s? Actually, the original, I think, is more similar to Hollow Man. Yeah, that sounds like Hollow Man. That does not sound like the Invisible Man to me. Yeah. Or the new one, anyway. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, so I am curious to see the new one. I have not yet watched it either. Yeah, it's just, there are moments, I mean, like, you know, if you're watching it purely from a film uh, standpoint, there are some technical things in it that are very interesting. There are some, uh, there are some pacing choices throughout the movie that I think are interesting. Um, And it's shot in a very kind of, uh, you know, great way for a movie like this. I think uh, I think there are a lot of technical things about the movie that are great. It's just a matter of, I don't know, it's just whether or not you're in a place where you want to watch that. It's kind of what we were just talking about. Is that how you want to spend your time right now when life is really yeah. crazy? Do you want to spend it watching this, you know, innocent woman being attacked by an invisible man or not? Yeah, you know? know. Yeah. Was I talking to you about this? So I've been following the actor who plays the invisible man, Oliver Jackson Cohen. I've been I've been following his career for a while because he he's done a lot of work in Britain that I like. Uh-huh. And um I just like sort of separate from him, I always look at actors, you know, who are sort of working in the American system and I think you get a movie where you're a lead but not only are you the bad guy, you're an abuser and you're invisible. So nobody sees your face for most of the movie. I mean, it just seems like it just seems like a crap role. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, like I, purely from an actor standpoint, you know, like if you do your job, you seem like a real asshole. You know what I mean? Like. And then are you going to get pigeonholed in that role moving forward? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I could see that being a, being a consideration. Um, the other one I wanted to mention, uh, similar vein action movie, although she's the one doing the hunting down, uh, the Blake Lively uh, revenge thriller, the, the rhythm section, I think it's called. How is that? It's okay. I mean, there is, it's another one where the sequence, there are certain sequences I thought were well shot and well executed. It, it, to me, what it was, was it felt very much like they were trying to launch a like Jason Bourne franchise for Blake Lively. And so the character, it, I don't know, I, I know you have kind of mixed feelings about Matt Damon. So I don't know how attached you are to the, to the Bourne movies. Do you like I those movies? Really, I love Matt Damon as an actor. Uh huh. I, I mean, I think he's the Meryl Streep of actors. I love him. I, yeah. Um, uh, I'm not crazy about the Bourne series. Okay. I was just so in love. I was so in love with the first book, and the first movie was, like, I hated what they did with the female character, and it was the best of the bunch. But the later movies, they're just not – they're fun, I guess, while you're watching them. You, I just can't remember a thing about them when I'm done. Sure. Yeah. yeah. It felt to me like they were, it, it was like 
almost an archetype of that character the like very and there is reason i won't get into although again this is not particularly spoiler because it's kind of like how the movie kind of sets into gear it's not really what happens to her in the end but you know she has a reason to be enacting revenge on some people and but it's it's that archetype of like a completely broken individual who almost doesn't speak who almost doesn't emote at all it's just kind of like this mechanical shell and I feel like it's a little bit, you know, we've seen that before and we've seen this. Um, I guess it's it's kind of interesting seeing a female uh, action hero character like that. But I don't know if it's enough interesting just having the female lead instead of Matt Damon. You know what I mean? Like it's it's mm-hmm. it's kind of like treading familiar ground to me. There were parts of it that were great. And I, I, you know, I haven't seen a lot of her work, but I think Blake Lively actually is capable of some pretty good stuff too. You know, I think she, she might have been able to to uh do more with this character maybe than than the character than was written on the page it was just almost like nothing there Mm, that's too bad sort of a missed opportunity yeah it felt very much like they really it really felt like oh this is going to be her franchise and i think the movie tanked i don't think it did very well and i think it also had the unfortunate circumstance of I think this came out like right as all of the COVID stuff was just ramping up so it may not entirely be anything but that but um I think it came and went very fast in the in the movie theaters back when movie theaters were a thing and um so I don't know well we'll see how we'll see how it goes but I I can't really give it a thumbs up unfortunately yeah um anyway well um, as a segue into Into the Woods, which is what we're going to talk about today, let's talk about uh, a little thing that happened last Sunday or maybe two Sundays ago. Um, there was a 90th birthday online celebration for Stephen Sondheim, who, of course, wrote Into the Woods. Um, and Meryl Streep sang with Christine Baranski and Audra McDonald. Did you get to watch that? I'll pretend like I don't know the answer. I know. <laughs> I did. I watched a large chunk of it. They had some technical difficulties at the beginning, and so I I missed the first part, and then I sort of missed the tail end. But, you know, the cool thing about it is that that celebration was supposed to happen in New York. Um, obviously, any of the Broadway houses are limited in size, so only so many people would be able to attend. I would certainly not be on that invite list. <laughs> um, and I think there was something really lovely about everyone getting to see, to see it. Um, So so that was really cool. And then I, I think a highlight for everybody was the three of them. Yeah. Doing ladies who lunch from a company. So good. Yeah. Um, I read something the next day or a couple days after, I guess I should say, um, I'm trying to remember because it wasn't Meryl and I honestly can't remember if it was Audrey McDonald or Christine Baranski. I think it was, I don't remember which of them it was. And I love both of them. So sorry. Um, but one of them was saying they had like the three of them had really significant fear about it. They thought like, maybe this isn't very good. And they had this fear of like, this might ruin our careers. And it had like this really kind of nauseous feeling about should we send this out into the world? 
Uh, and so the reception that they got when everybody loved it was very much a, a relief to them because at least according to one of them, they really didn't know if this was going to play very well. So, which is kind of amazing because it was great. I think part of the problem was Zoom. Like people, I mean, Zoom's just a tough, a tough beast to to tackle. And I can't remember who I was talking to. Somebody who was working on the production itself had all of these, <laughs> like, has all of this outtake footage of them being like, "How does this work? What is happening? Like, right. how do I get this to work? Is it on? Is it working?" <laughs> Which is amazing. I would love to see that footage. So I can see in that medium um, because it's home produced. And when you're a professional actor and everything you do on film is highly produced, it's just a whole nother ball game. I would be super anxious about it, too, if I were them. And of course, they're they pulled it off beautifully because they're so good at what they do. Um, yeah. They had nothing to worry about. Yeah, I thought they all sounded great. I thought that three of them, it was a great balance between the three of them like obviously audra mcdonald has like let's just say superior vocal chops she's she's pretty you know like classically trained i know meryl is too and i don't know what christine baranski's um background musical theater is i know she's been in a lot of musicals and is um i i love her voice i think she's I, there's just something about christine baranski that like i think everybody loves i don't know what how oh, to yeah. describe it but she's just like one of those people that everybody likes she's she's able to kind of access that like um sarcastic dry humor wit but she's also like over the top when she needs to be like she's just i don't know she's like meryl in that way she's really got a wide range she um not to again make a tangent but she was in i think the, my favorite thing that I've ever seen on stage was, I think, almost a decade ago, maybe more. She was in an amazing, amazing Broadway production of Boeing, Boeing uh, with Mark Rylance. And I want to see it so badly. Oh, it was it was the two of them, Bradley Whitford, Catherine Hahn, before anybody really knew who she was. Um, Mary McCormick, I think, was in it. She was in a do you know who she is from? She had a show called In Plain Sight, I think. Yep. Um, there was somebody else too. I, I mean, it was just one of those things where everybody in the cast was like one of the greats, you know, and the precision that they had, it, I mean, it, it was kind of like, it, we've talked about, you know, farces before and it's, um, noise is off is like this too. If you get it firing on all cylinders, if you get the timing just right, there is literally nothing better. And if it's off by just a little bit, there's almost nothing works. You know what I mean? And it's, it's gotta be so precise and it's gotta be just perfect. And they had that down so tightly in this production of Boeing, Boeing. It was unbelievable. And it was one of the things that it was a trip to New York where I saw a bunch of stuff and, you know, like I saw uh, Francis McDormand and Morgan Freeman in a play and he would think, how amazing was that? It was okay. It was good, but it wasn't great. You know, like I saw a bunch of stuff that I thought was going to be amazing and Boeing, Boeing was kind of an afterthought. It was like, oh, we have one more day. What else should we see? And that was the one that was like, oh, my God, that was incredible. That was the best thing, you know? Yeah. I mean, if you told me that Mark Rylance was doing a one-man show where he stared at a rock for two hours, I would buy a ticket. Yeah, he was. <laughs> he was. Yeah. He was what sold that. But Christine Baranski was unbelievable, too. Anyway, that was a tangent. But, um 
I thought they were great. Did you end up watching any else, any of the other performances from the Sondheim 90th? Um, yeah. Um, Neil Patrick Harris comes to mind. He was super charming. He sang, um, uh, one of the witch, was it one of the witches songs from Into the Woods with his kids? It was super cute. And Sutton Foster, um, you can still Jake Gyllenhaal, obviously Meryl Streep and Christine Baranski. Um, Did you watch yeah. either Bernadette Peters or Patti Lapone? Yeah, I saw Patti. I didn't see Bernadette. It must have been during a portion that I had checked out. I need to go back and watch it because, her, I mean, her relationship with Sondheim over time has just been so lovely. And she has that amazing album where she does all Sondheim music yeah. um, in concert and... Um, and I just love her. She's amazing. Yeah. Um, I didn't watch anybody else, but I've been looking to get, uh, I don't know. Both of them have, like you say, kind of an established relationship with Sondheim. I don't know. I, it's, yeah, I, I am at, I actually was kind of surprised. I, did you assume that Meryl might sing something from Into the Woods? I mean, we didn't know in advance what, the, what each person would be doing, or did you not really think of it? You know what? I didn't really know. I sort of, I figured that everyone would be picking their favorites. And since his body of work is so large, um, you know, I didn't really guess. Um, um, but I guess I sort of figured she'd seen something different since she's sort of been there, done that. Um, oh, I did see Katrina Link's Joanna. Katrina Link is the current star of the gender swapped production of Company that just hit Broadway. That yeah. did really well on the West End. And um, um, also with Patty LuPone. Yeah. And she, yes. And she was also in the band's visit and won a Tony for that um, a few years ago. And that was beautiful. There were a lot of really good ones. Aaron Veet. I recommend people go peruse through it and just listen to his music. He's the most phenomenal songwriter and lyricist. He's just a genius. He's a genius and he's 90 years old. I don't know. I hope we have him for a lot longer, but I don't know. That's a good segue. Let's yeah. get into, into the woods written by one Stephen Sondheim. Um, uh, directed by Rob Marshall, Christmas Day, 2014. Doesn't this seem longer ago than 2014? I feel like this was like, it feels like that wasn't that long ago. That was like five and a half years ago. And yet it seems like this movie has been around for a while to me. I don't know. Yeah. You know what? I saw it in the theater. I haven't watched it since. I know the musical quite well. I could not recall um, more than maybe one scene of this film. <laughs> it feels like I saw it that long ago is what I'm saying. Not that the film is bad. I just like, I couldn't, I just couldn't jog my memory. I remember the sort of the visual image of Meryl Streep as the witch in the woods. And that was all I had. <laughs> so um, yeah, it feels like forever ago. And 2014 was not forever ago. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, so should we start with the synopsis? Do you feel like, how do we synopse this one? I think I, I'm going to be very general. Okay. So Sondheim took sort of every classic fairy tale in the book, Cinderella, Rapunzel, 
Little Red Riding Hood, um, uh, Jack and the Beanstalk, and um, a few others. And he put them in one musical. And the overarching theme of this musical is you think you know what you want. And if you get your fairy tale ending, you'll be happy. But what are you willing to do to get what you want? And if you get it, is it really what you wanted? And will you be satisfied with that? And, and it's sort of a genius idea to take these fairy tales to illustrate that theme because, you know, they all have something they need and it brings them into the woods to go get it. And um, they, after scheming and plotting and lying and cheating, they do get what they want. And at the end of Act One, they all seemingly have their happy ending or in this case, in the middle of the film. And then the sort of second half of, of the film or the story is sort of watching that get dismantled. Mm-hmm. I'll put it at that. It's not a very detailed synopsis, but I should it's- add, so while we're discussing it, it sort of starts with the baker and his wife. They want to have a baby. She can't. And the witch from next door shows up, Meryl Streep, who tells them that she placed a curse on their house when the baker's father and his wife were young because they stole magic beans from her and the curse she placed on the house was that it would be a childless house which is why the baker and his wife can't have a baby and there's going to be what is it um, a special moon and three nights and they she sends them into the woods to get four things a, a milky white cow a cape as red as blood hair as um, yellow as corn and um, what's the last one? The, the, a slipper, a gold yeah. slipper. Yeah. And so that's where you kick off and you meet all these fairy tale characters in the woods. Yeah. It, uh, so how did you feel about this after, after watching it? You know, it's funny. I never, I haven't rewatched it because I was really disappointed in it in 2014. Uh-huh. And I I thought it was a rare instance where Hollywood finally got the singing aspect of a movie, movie musical correct, <laughs> where everyone had the singing chops they needed to do Sondheim well. Um, but there was something in the transition to screen and like the need to market it towards like family and kids that sort of watered it down. And I just didn't like it. However, rewatching it, I really enjoyed it. And I don't know why I was being such a stick in the mud in 2014. I thought it's a pretty good adaptation. I mean, I prefer the stage musical, but it's not bad. What did you think? Am I in a good mood? No, I liked it too. I liked it way more than I thought I would. I Is mean, I, I'm seeing it. No, no, no. I, I'm sorry. I, I was just about to say it's not my first time seeing it, but um, I, I, um, yeah. You know what? So, as I feel like I haven't mentioned this in probably five episodes, you know, and I mentioned this in just about you know 25 episodes in a row before that, but. Um, I am not that big of a musical theater person, and this is one of the musicals that I do really like. I like Into the Woods a lot. I guess I kind of gravitate towards Sondheim um, for the musicals that I do like. I like Company a lot. I like Gypsy a lot. I like a lot of his stuff. Um, And 
Into the Woods is one that I always, I do think that um, there is, a, you know, you can find it pretty readily available. I know there was a DVD available of like the, the Broadway production from 1987 with Bernadette Peters as the witch and Joanna Gleason as the baker's wife. Um, and that I remember seeing in high school and just thinking was the greatest thing. Have you ever seen that? You must have seen that. Um, which one? The, like the video they made of the Broadway production with Bernadette Peters and Joanna Gleason. No, I've seen clips. They, I, I have the DVD of it. And I mean, like, it, it's not hard to find. And um, one of the things that I do think is great about that uh, particular one, and I'm not sure because I, I haven't really seen very many Broadway productions. I'm almost positive. It's probably been 10, 15 years since I've actually watched that. But I think it has an audience present. I think that that is taped like a live Broadway show where like the audience reaction is in there. I think you're right because I, I do remember watching the opening scene with Joanna Gleason. That is a piece I've heard and I swear there's audience in there. Yeah. I remember, um, I remember her in particular. I mean, Joanna Gleason just owned that role, uh, in a way that was, she was so good in that. And, um, they made a little bit more in the Broadway production of the scene where the baker's wife and the prince kind of have their little fling in the woods, uh, that kind of funny scene. And, uh, I remember her kind of saying, what was that? And getting it like, it just had like rolling laughter in the Broadway production. Whereas this one, it almost felt like kind of a throwaway line almost. Um, but so I remember certain things where like, it felt like the audience was very present and, you know, that may be one thing that's missing from this adaptation is, you know, it felt, it, you know, like stage adaptations that are recorded, obviously, without an audience. Um, mm-hmm. There's that element of it somewhat missing. But, yep. you know, this, I thought it was a really nice adaptation. Um, and especially for uh, the time period in which um, it was made, where I felt like there there had been some other musicals where maybe they went a bit too far with things. Like I felt like they did a nice job of staying pretty true to this. Like it wasn't, they didn't take it too far in terms of like going crazy with the shots. Like it felt like a stage show, you know, like it felt like it was recorded on a set and it was just. It did. And then it had the added quality of, you know, there's so often in a musical where a character is standing and and singing to the audience and telling you a story in that song. And that doesn't work in film. It's not very interesting to have an actor just sitting there telling you a story about something that happened, but then not showing you. And I think they did a great job of doing like the flashback scenes within a song so that you could see the action of the song unfold. Mm-hmm. I I really liked that about it too. I was, you know, for the sake of time and the fact that it was a film, there's some music cut. Um, I think I think the biggest loss, at least to my notice, was the reprise of Agony with the two princes, where they've moved on to two different princesses in the second portion of the film. Mm-hmm. Um, that was a missing piece for me. I'm sure there's more, um, but that was the most noticeable. Yeah. And, and two, like, it's so dark. 
It's so humorous. It does deal with adult themes. It's a little, it's, it's a wee bit watered down. And they do have a marketing issue. I mean, that's the beautiful thing about theater, especially, you know, sort of in New York. You don't have to worry about marketing to specific demographics in the same way that you have to worry about it in film. Right. And I'm sure film execs sat down and they said, how the heck did we market this thing? It's a musical and it's fairy tales that tells me family and children, but this is not family and children content in the way that it needs to. How do we cross that line and, and make it work? So you could tell they struggled a little bit with that. Um, it was interesting that uh, when you were talking about feeling like it was watered down and I, I get all of that and it's exactly like you say. I mean, this was also released on Christmas Day. You you know, you want to talk about, like, yeah. let's take the family to the movies on Christmas Day kind of thing. It's rated PG. Every one-star review is from an angry parent who brought their kid to see this movie. <laughs> and the kid was either freaked out or completely bored and wanted to leave after 20 minutes, according yeah. to the it's all there's like 50 50 reviews that are like screw you disney why would you make this movie and have it be pg and make market it like a family movie and put it out on christmas day it's not a kid's movie man it's just not it's not a kid's show it wasn't meant to be um yeah so it really is yeah <laughs> that's hilarious i'm glad that my instincts are correct on that <laughs> well and that's what i thought you know um, spoiler alert, but it did come out in 2014, so you, you've earned it at this point. Um, You're also listening to a Meryl Streep podcast. Yeah, so, people know. die in it. Yeah. And I feel like they didn't, re they really didn't want people to die. And so they were like, like when the baker's wife, Emily Blunt's character dies, it's like, oh gosh, how do we, um, how do we just get past this? Well, and that's what they did. They, it was basically a passing reference. It was just a, you know, it was very subtle. Yeah, very. It was like, oh, you see her hand sort of in slow motion as if she's falling off a cliff. And then somebody reports to you that she fell off a cliff and we move right on. Right, <laughs> right. And, you know, this is, as we've talked about now, the, this is fairy tales. Like those grim fairy tales, those are way darker than anything in this. So dark. And I don't, I don't Ironically know. Ironically made lighter by Disney. Right. So the thing, the story that everybody knows is the Disney version, which is all light and fluffy, but then Disney, Disney produced this, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. I love it. It's amazing. Yeah. Full circle. Well, and it's, it is complicated because I don't like the idea of saying like, oh, kids couldn't handle this because kids no. are, kids are resilient. Of course, kids can handle death. Kids can yeah. handle stuff like this. It's, I think this, but it's more, can kids get enjoyment from, you know, complicated Stephen Sondheim scores? Hey. <laughs> um, and, you know, adults can, but I mean, like that's, that's Sondheim's calling card, isn't it? Like how intelligent his, his writing is and how fast paced. And there's like these jokes within jokes and these, you know, like it's wordplay and it's, it's rhythm jokes and it's you know like double entendres within I, you know like it's all very uh 
it's all very complex. And if you're aiming that at, at kids and also, you know, like killing off everybody in it, I don't know. It's just kind of a rough, it's kind of a weird dichotomy. I, yeah, I, I do think they, they probably had a tough time with this one, but they also spent a lot of money on this. And so, you know, wanted it to do well and it did do well. Um, it, there was a budget of $50 million for this one. Um, it made almost that in its uh, opening weekend. The uh, let's, let's see, the U.S. gross was uh, 128 million, and the worldwide gross was about 213 million. So it made you know more than 150 million dollars, more than 160 million dollars. So this movie was a success by all um, you know by all financial accounts. It's just. One of the things that I did, um, and I, I sent it to you, is I found myself kind of curious about the IMDb ratings for Meryl's movie because I think when we were doing uh, "It's Complicated" last week, um, I I said whatever that film got, you know, whatever its rating was, and I think I said something like "That's not so great." And then I started thinking about it. I was like, actually, that's kind of where most of her movies are. So maybe it's maybe it's about normal. This is one of her lowest rated movies on IMDb. This is uh, the rating for this one on IMDb is a 5.9 out of 10, which is tied with Ricky and the Flash. The only ones lower than this are She Devil, which is bottom of the pack, Stuck on You, which she just has a little quick cameo in, and Ant Bully, which is an animated movie. Whoa. And then this and Ricky and the Flash. So there are movies that we have. Uh, given pretty negative reviews to, including Manhattan, Julia, yeah. Holmesman. Um, uh, what is the other? There was one that was really surprising to me. House of the Spirits is a 6.9. This is a 5.9. Yeah. House of the Spirits is is pretty far up there in, in her catalog. And this is a 5.9. And so I don't know. There is There is some for sure dislike of this movie out there. And I don't I don't know. I feel like this is a movie people should revisit because it's actually better than um, maybe it was just the Christmas season. Maybe it was too saturated with marketing at that time. I don't know. But this movie is better than it's kind of being represented online, I think. Oh, I agree. I think uh, truly I think it was. I believe that that rating has to do with mismanaged audience expectations because the the majority of America is not exposed to Sondheim and um, or know what he's about. And I think you really have to have an education about that when you go to watch something. If you don't have it, you have to be very clear at what you're going in to see because it's not a traditional fairy tale musical. It's not Rodgers and Hammerstein's Cinderella. Right. And I don't think they did that well. I'm not sure how you do it well. I certainly don't claim to be able to do like I I don't know what they would have done to really make it work. It was sort of a little bit of a conundrum. Do you think something as simple as rating it PG thirteen instead of PG could have helped? Like keep the yeah. keep the really young kids away or at least like give the parents some clue as to but see there's also nothing you know if if it had been rated pg-13 it would have been one of those movies that people would have been like why is this rated pg-13 like there's no language in it there's no you know what i mean like there's nothing 
particularly on screen violent. Maybe the Johnny Depp wolf character. I don't know. <laughs> well, I think, see, that's the thing. It's like Johnny Depp's wolf character is basically a fairy tale stand in for a child molester. Yeah. And, um, and there are extramarital affairs and there is, you know, the giant diet. Like there's a lot of stuff that they could have leaned into a little more to sort of fill out the color of the piece because it's those dark undertones are so prevalent in the musical itself. Mm-hmm. And that's what's watered down about it. And I think if they had gone PG-13 and not been sort of afraid to sort of touch that stuff, it would have been better. Yeah, I agree. It's interesting too, though, you lose some stuff. Like in the in the move in the original musical, the 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 wolf who goes after Little Red Riding Hood, um, he becomes one of the princes. And so there's you know that double casting definitely has an impact on how you perceive and interpret the story. Mm-hmm. And you, I mean, I get it. You can't do that in film. Right. They yeah. also typically cast adults as Little Red Riding Hood and Jack. Um, obviously, something you can't do in film as well. So, and that's one thing too. Uh, just incidentally, um, Anna Kendrick, when she was asked to audition for this, she assumed for Little Red because, like you say, they had always had you know uh, an adult actress play play those characters, um, and so she thought that was the role that she was you know, being called in for. I think that they had done that. They, um, and really thought outside the box and sort of stuck with what they did in the show that they could have leaned into that dark material a little better. I don't think anyone is prepared to have, um, uh, an actual little girl in a predatory situation with a, right. Right. (laughs) Like yeah. having the adult cast in the role allows you to explore that territory a little bit more without, you know, making you yeah. want to poke your eyes out. I I will say I thought the the kid that played Jack was great. Oh, the, both of them were great. They're yeah. great. Yeah, um, I liked them both. Yeah. Um, how did you feel about the casting overall? I actually didn't really. I felt like this was pretty good like I didn't feel like there was really a weak link in this one which surprised me because there's usually somebody who you're like you know everybody was great except I, yep. I thought everybody was pretty good top to bottom here I didn't feel like anyone was stunt casting who couldn't step up to the plate I enjoyed every single one of their voices which I don't think I can say for a single movie musical made since 1990 yeah like there is someone who can't handle the load in every single movie musical they make and i don't i don't understand the issue i don't know why hollywood has such an aversion to the broadway sound they do they Mm -hmm. run away from it like it's got the plague i don't understand it um it makes no sense to me why you wouldn't want trained voices. And I get that you need named actors. I feel like this was an instance where they just got it right, man. They got it right. Right. Um, can I give you some, according to IMDb, 
So yeah. may or may not be factual. Some of the other folks who were at one point or another considered for the witch, so Meryl's role, uh, mm -hmm. Catherine Zeta-Jones, who had previously done Chicago with Rob Marshall, Penelope Cruz, who had previously done Nine with Rob Marshall, uh, Nicole Kidman, who was also in mm -hmm. Nine, um, Donna Murphy, who had played it on Broadway, Michelle yep. Pfeiffer, Adina Menzel, Miranda Richardson, Kate Winslet, and Sissy Spacek. According to IMDb, were all at one point or another considered for um, The Witch. And there were, uh, let's see, I'm trying to find this other thing. Oh, uh, there's a list of people who were considered for The Baker, which is the James Corden role. Matthew Broderick, John C. Riley, Neil Patrick Harris, Colin Firth, Johnny Depp, Dennis O'Hare, and Jim Carrey. That is such a wide range. It is. Wow. Yep. What was the uh, one right before Jim Carrey? Dennis O'Hare, who I don't know who that is. Um, he is in American Horror Story, and uh, he was in Sondheim's Assassins, the yes, revival with Neil Harris. Yeah, he's an yep. amazing actor. Yeah. Um, there are a couple more on here. Uh, Tina Fey apparently auditioned for the role of the baker's wife. That would be interesting. Ooh. Alan Cumming was considered to play the wolf, the Johnny Depp role. Um, and then I was watching a bunch of the behind the scenes, uh, you know, stuff. There's actually quite a lot of stuff um, on the on the Blu-ray. There's a lot of great behind the scenes interviews, mm -hmm. like segments. And they mentioned several times that, you know, they had really tried over the years several times to make this happen. Like this was not all of a sudden in 2014 was the first time they thought to do this. They tried a bunch of points along the way. And again, on IMDb, so, you know, who knows? Um, but they said that in 1994, there was a reading at Penny Marshall's house for some executives with Robin Williams, Goldie Hawn and Cher oh. participating. And then later it moved to Columbia Pictures and uh, Rob Minkoff was going to direct it with Billy Crystal, Meg Ryan, and Susan Sarandon involved. Oh, wow. Yeah. So this is one of those movies that had kind of been, uh, you know, bumped around over the years and, you know, had some interesting folks attached to it at various points. Yeah, definitely. Long period of development here. Yeah. It's hard to get a musical made. Yep. Any of those, uh, any of those people more interesting to you than than another in terms of casting? That's a whole lot of people to think about all yeah, at once. I know. You know, um, I just feel like they got it right. Yeah, I really do. I mean, it's not. I would be interested to see a variation on it with other people, but I don't. Re I don't regret not seeing any of them. If that makes sense. Yeah. Oh, the other one, I don't think I mentioned this either. Sorry, I'm doing too much of the alternate universe uh, casting here. But, you know, um, Emma Stone was apparently offered the role of Cinderella back when she was doing Cabaret off Broadway. Nope. And she told Rob Marshall she didn't think she had the vocal range for it and kind of joked, asked if she could play Jack instead, which I think is <laughs> endearing. <laughs> That's so endearing. And I appreciate that because she doesn't. I saw her in that production of Cabaret. How was it? Oh, she was just fucking phenomenal. Excuse my language. She was so, so good as Sally Bowles. She's a, she's a really phenomenal actor. And Sally Bowles is an interesting role because it doesn't it, it doesn't require you to have a pretty classical trained voice. Right. 
it re- requires you to obviously be able to sing and just have some serious acting chops, both of which she can do. Um, and she was so good in it. But I, I appreciate that she recognized that she wasn't right for Cinderella because she's just not vocally. Yeah. Not there. Yeah. Anna Kendrick did such a beautiful job. Um, yeah. No, I think it is good when, and I think that's a big big under kind of talked about and undervalued quality in like the big stars of the world is like knowing when you're not right for something and not putting yourself in that position. Yeah. I mean, seriously, that is something that it's, it's not just being humble. It's being really smart to, to like be aware of what your, you know, like your, uh, what your not expectations, but like what your abilities are and having like a realistic, I mean, why wouldn't you want to be in this movie? I'm sure she would love to be in this movie, but like knowing, oh, you know what? I might not be the perfect choice for this. Um, it is kind of ironic that she did win her Oscar for a different musical, but very different musical. But you know, that beautiful song at the end of La La Land, um, the, aud- the audition, um, at that song uh, when she auditions in La La Land, um, it has a very similar quality to what I was talking about in Cabaret, that it's more about the performance than it is the vocal control and training. Um, and of course, Emma Stone can sing and she has a pleasant voice. It's not unpleasant to listen to by any means, but it's her performance in that song that is so moving. I just, I love that she won for it. Yeah. 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 Let's talk about Meryl in this movie. Oh, she's so good. <laughs> she's so, so good. I just, man, I just love her. It's like, it's it would be so easy to drift into caricature witch. Yep. And and every time she she just walks that line, she's just walking that tightrope. Or every time I think she's going to fall over into the caricature world. She does the polar opposite and, and grounds it and has so much gravitas. I just, she blows my mind. I love the woman so much. Yeah. yeah. What do you think? Oh, I thought she was, I thought she was great in this. I, you know, like ultimately the thing I, it's one of those roles that's so iconic, I think, again, from, you know, Bernadette Peters really, she had the opportunity to establish it, of course, and because there is footage out there that a lot of people have seen of her playing this role. I don't know. Sometimes when somebody owns a role like that so strongly, um, Meryl is one of those people that I feel like sometimes she's been... Uh, kind of like, oh, I don't want to touch that. Somebody else has done that and they've, you know, they've, that's their thing. And I don't want to like try to compete with that. I feel like she's done that a number of times. And um, so it's really interesting to me that, you know, I guess maybe enough time had passed and, um, you know, there was something about this that was appealing to her in this moment. It, It was also kind of in that stretch of movies where you know between this and Mamma Mia and uh you know there are a couple other ones where she was getting to sing more even this was just a year before Ricky and the Flash too so like you know she was singing more in in her movies at that point um and so maybe maybe that was just it it was another opportunity for her to stretch and and play a witch for the first time she had very famously said (laughs) the year she turned 40 she was offered three different witches and you know wasn't 
decided she wouldn't. And then this came along and she said, OK, I'm going to break my rule for this one and only this one. Well, I mean, who doesn't break their rule for Sondheim? Yeah. Well, and especially since uh, speaking of the Blu-ray and DVD extras, Sondheim wrote a move or a song specifically for her as a witch, which they actually ended up cutting from the movie. Um, So, you know, like there's also the promise of something like that, which is, you know, but um, she, I thought, did a really nice job of like really making the character her own. I didn't see any shades of what Bernadette Peters did with this witch at all. It was, I mean, it was a totally different interpretation. Yep. The the interpretation I got from Meryl was like this very, um, overwhelmed isn't the right word, but she just felt like enough with this bullshit already. Like, yep. you know, like she just wanted to, things to be better. And she she wanted to stop having to, you know, micromanage everything. And she wanted to just kind of like, just get it right. You know, like she, she was kind of, she played the witch is very exasperated the whole time. Time like that was kind of the thing I was getting from her, which was such a unique choice. I think it wasn't, um, I don't know, Bernadette, when she played, it had this very like big grand kind of, um, even her posture when she played, it was kind of like very, look at me. And, um, you know, Meryl approached this in a very different way. Um, yeah, I thought it was great. I thought she was great. It's always, um, nice hearing, um, hearing the way she sings a song too, you know, as you know, somebody who's, she was really classically trained when she was taking voice lessons and you hear a little bit of that. Sometimes it's not, she doesn't really have a conventional musical theater voice. Um, Mm. But I like the way she uses her voice in this. Um, I think it's interesting. The Witch is my favorite role in Into the Woods for sure. And I think what I love about her performance is that she she hits every single detailed beat, emotional beat in the song, um, which I think is harder when you're on stage. Um, because one, people just can't see your face to that extent. Um, and you can't really take your time with it in the same way. But I feel like she brought to life the performance I've always had in my head with that music. And how often does that happen? I mean, it's often, it's like reading a novel and then seeing the film version, what you have in your head and how you've interpreted something versus how somebody else chooses to express it on camera, those things never line up. And I think this is one of those rare instances where um, those two things match up and it was really magical. Because I feel like that exacerbation is in the lyrics of the song. I love it how she's the witch, but it's everybody else who's so nice, who is scheming and cheating and lying and grabbing. Right. At the things that they want. And it's just so beautifully illustrated in the film through her performance. I also, when she sings um, her final song and she belts her guts out. And it's so like I had goosebumps. Yeah. And yeah, that's hard to do on film. It's hard to pick up on that sort of level of energy from a singer when something's been pre-recorded in a studio and filmed. There's so much distance between you and the thing. 
that it's really, I, it doesn't happen very often that a film will generate that kind of response for me, as opposed to a stage musical where somebody's like belting their guts out. Um, so that was really cool too. Yeah. One of the things that they mentioned on the behind the scenes stuff was they, they actually recorded the singing two different ways that obviously they went into the recording studio as most musicals would and record, you know, that very kind of lush orchestration. But then they also sang to the recording of the orchestra live on set and use that whenever they could, whenever they felt like that was the most, you know, true and kind of authentic performance um they would use that and they would only use the recording studio stuff when for one reason or another they needed to so i think the blend of those two performances is probably really helpful here too i mean if for no other reason than they always had options right like they always had um you know multiple takes to choose from um i think one of the things that you're articulating better than i did um but i guess i, I want to put it a different way is it felt to me like meryl acted this movie uh you know like her performance came from her acting she's an actress who happens to have a really lovely voice rather than um an act you know rather than a really great singer who can also act you know like i think the acting was first and foremost it was it was at the front even if it came at the expense of not belting every moment if it came from uh there was a an interesting way to speak a line or if there was something she could do she went for the interesting choice and the kind of like actor choice rather than the singer choice i thought if that makes any sense yeah absolutely yeah yeah i agree um any favorite scenes from this movie that final song she sings man that was probably my favorite is it stay with me or last oh. midnight it's last midnight. Yeah. Yeah. Last midnight is probably my favorite scene in the film. I also love, you know what I love? There's a section in the first, the opening song where she's talking about all the greens that they stole. And she, in the music, the witch goes off on this tangent about how the lightning strikes. And, and then the witch says, well, that's another story, never mind anyway, and and goes on. And, you know, when you're watching the show on stage, you don't get to see what the other story is, right. but they chose to visualize what that other story was. And I felt like I got a window into Stephen Sondheim's creative process, like what was intended to be there. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? I thought it was just, I thought that was very cool. Yeah, no, I'm with you. A little flashback to uh, what was happening with the baker's father and what what exactly she was talking about when the lightning strikes. And for those of you who know the musical, you know what I'm talking about. And for those of you who don't, I'm speaking gibberish. I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm with you. I, I that is one of the things that I was saying earlier about you know like it's almost like a filmed stage adaptation in a lot of ways. Like they didn't make these choices to go like crazy big but yeah. there were also these glimpses you know where you got to see things exactly like you're saying where you got to see things a perspective usually that yeah. you just wouldn't in the stage you know what else what other moment there is is when cinderella when the <laughs> the prince puts pitch on the staircase so she gets stuck the third night and can't run away from him Mm -hmm. And in the film version, we get to see her. And I'm not, I don't think this happens in the stage version, does it? Where she steps out of her shoes 
I don't remember. And sits down. I loved that moment where she steps out of her shoes and sort of sits down on the sits down on the stairs of the palace and has this sort of internal monologue <laughs> to decide that, whether or not she's going to run away or stay. I think that does happen in the stage adaptation. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. I love the filming around it, though, which you can't do in a stage ad- adaptation. Yeah. Yeah. I think Rob Marshall did a great job with this movie. It's, um, you know, he's... Let's see. I'm gonna I'm gonna look this up. So I'm speaking it. I I think he's done maybe five or six movies. I think Chicago was maybe his very first. It was uh, director or directing credit. Number he'd done like nine. This. Well, first in between nine and this, there was Pirates of the Caribbean on Stranger Tides. Oh, I didn't know he directed that. Crazy. Mm-hmm. And then Into the Woods, and then. Mary Poppins Returns, which reunited him with both Emily Blunt and Meryl. Which I loved. I thought that was so charming. Yeah. Um, so this movie, like we said, you know, did really well in terms of, uh, you know, like its uh, budget and everything. It, it made some money. It was nominated for three Golden Globes. It was nominated for Best uh, Comedy or Musical, Best Performance by an Actress in a Motion Picture, Comedy or Musical for Emily Blunt. And best performance by an actress in a supporting role for Meryl. Did that? Does that strike you as interesting that Emily Blunt would be in the lead and Meryl in the supporting? It almost seemed like it should be flipped to me. I don't know. I think maybe it's because the whole, the sort of the anchor of the film is the baker and the baker's wife right. trying to get these things. I think, I do think it's a totally artificial label. Yeah, I and do too. You easily swap it. Or you could easily put them in the same category. Right. I I think it was one of those years. So looking at, um, it was it was then nominated for three Academy Awards, not in the same categories. It was not nominated for Best Picture, and Emily Blunt did not receive a nomination. But Meryl did receive a nomination for Best Supporting Actress that year. That was a year she lost to Patricia Arquette for Boyhood, which incidentally uh, turned uh, out one of the great Meryl uh, gifts, if you've seen that one, where she's sitting next to J-Lo. And she's she's chanting, uh, like, you go, you know, she, like, stands up and points at uh, Patricia Arquette because she got political in her speech, and and Meryl was loving it. Uh, But that was the other... Uh, nominees that year were Laura Dern for Wild, Kira Knightley for The Imitation Game, and Emma Stone for Birdman. That was the year that Birdman won Best Picture. Um, the, the other two nominations at the Oscars that it got were uh, Best Production Design and Best Costume Design, which it, it lost both of those to the Grand Budapest Hotel. Um, that was the year... Uh, so the rest of that year, it was a lot of Birdman. Uh, Eddie Redmayne won Best Actor that year for The Theory of Everything. Julianne Moore won for Still Alice. And J.K. Simmons won for Whiplash, kind of rounding out that year. See, all of that feels much more recent. <laughs> so I can't believe it's been so long. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I mean, is this movie doesn't seem like it was that long ago. And it's not. I mean, 2014 was not that long ago. But okay. it seems like it's it's been a, you know... It, it's not been that long since this movie was out. A lot has happened since then, Zach. A lot. That's true. That's <laughs> true. Um, let's see. Well, I am. Uh, anything else you want to say about this movie while I'm trying to find a, a particularly good one-star review to read? No. No? Okay. Yeah. I'm just going to read this one. 
They're all I could I could read about 50 of them and they all essentially are the same. But this is this is one of the more um, kind of exaggerated and more kind of ridiculous ones, I think. Um, This the title of this one. I don't know how to how to read this person's username, but it's Bubba's, I guess. Uh, And the title of the review is Walt Disney would be horrified and horrified is capitalized. Nothing else is. Um, And it says, I saw this with my children two weeks ago. I told my eight-year-old that she will never be allowed to watch this ever again. The movie goes out of its way to introduce worldly wickedness in every aspect of the movie. The pure storylines from generations of beautiful stories we all grew grew up with have been totally corrupted. Walt Disney would fire every person associated with this movie. What the heck is wrong with Hollywood? I was actually upset when I left the movie theater. Let me see. I think we can take the heroes and make them into adulterers. Very intelligent, Disney. I rate this as the worst movie I have ever seen, and I've seen somewhere that were atrocious. I had to take a shower after being assaulted by Disney. Wow. To add, to add to the stupidity, by the way, this happens every single time, but she misspelled, she used the wrong two in a sentence in which she was calling somebody else stupid, but I'll continue. <laughs> to add to the stupidity... The singing, more appropriately ranting, all was sung to the very strange beat, not music, and sometimes would not end. At one point, I leaned over to my wife and said, I might have to commit suicide. Joking, of course. This was, I believe, to be some philosophical look at the human condition in life and the obstacles we supposedly encounter therein lies into the woods. Disney felt the need to take historical story characters and twist their traits, also the wrong use of their, twist their traits into this perverted domain until we all screen, not scream, screen uncle and abandon the theater. So Bubba's real pissed. Um, What's fascinating about that review is that, like, there's one sentence in there where he clearly understood the point of the whole thing. Right. <laughs> and that's still his review. Like, if you had read the rest of the review to me without that, I would have assumed he just didn't get it. Right. That's fascinating to me. The most fascinating is there's like a hundred others that are exactly like that. There was, I mean, like that was, there was a very, uh, I don't, I don't know, is repressed the right word? Like a very uptight percentage of the population who, I mean, I guess only want things to reflect sunshine and raindrop, you know, like sunshine and roses and like they want everything to be happy and everything to be, you know, a, a caricature and like joyful and you know, I don't know. Like there, there are a lot of people who wanted that to be what was this, this movie was. You know what, too, if you don't have any, I could be wrong about this. And I would really love to hear from a listener who has no background in musical theater, who went to see Into the Woods and fully appreciated it for what it was. Because I think, again, so much of the problem with Into the Woods is that it has such a history behind it in the theater world and with Sondheim. And Sondheim's reputation precedes him in terms of the kind of work he does and what to look for in the work. So if you know that going in, you're just so excited to hear all the nuances and the just sort of approach to the world. But if you go into a film 
like that, expecting a Disney live action fairy tale. Woo, that is not what that movie is. Right. Like, it's the polar opposite of that. Right. And I do think, again, that was a marketing problem for Disney. It's like you are, you have a reputation for delivering fairy tales in a certain way, you in particular. If another studio had done the film, it might have been less of a problem. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah, it's fascinating to me. I mean, I get it. You know, um, Sondheim is not always mass appeal you know like his his musicals are intricate and they're you know musicians love them and actors love them because they're very technical and they're very um they're great fun to play and they're also an incredible challenge for one reason or another right and so like do we expect your typical audience member to love every element of it i certainly wouldn't but so maybe it goes back to that thing that we kind of started talking about earlier of maybe the problem here is taking this movie and assuming it has mass appeal when it's really like a very specialized yeah um, it is you know maybe it's maybe it's not meant for everybody maybe that's okay but on rotten tomatoes it has a 71 let's see 71 percent. it's got a 49 percent audience score okay that's not horrible. Um, no, it's not. The narrative is a mess. There are way too many songs, and the characters are two-dimensional. Nice production work, though. <laughs> That's a Rotten Tomato review. Mark is W. Yeah. Um, tiresome. One thing I was fairly pleased with um, was pretty uniformly, even most of the one-star reviews that I went through, they weren't... There was nothing specific about Meryl or really anybody else in the cast. It wasn't about that. It was about, um, and in fact, a lot of people were very complimentary of the cast and, you know, the direction and production design and things like that. It was just a problem with the musical Into the Woods. And like, again, that, you know, weird moral (laughs) stance that a lot of people seem to be taking with this story. I don't know. You know, I, I, I was going to say I get it, but I don't really get it. Like, you know, it's just that like sheltering your kids from anything thing, you know, and that's what that's what they seem to want to do here. But I have to read this. This is a half star review on Rotten Tomatoes. It's it's basically the same thing Bubba said, but I'm going to cut to this sentence because it's worth it. I actually took the disc out of the Blu-ray player and frisbeed it as far off my desk quote, into the woods as I could get it. <laughs> ah, I was like, clever, clever. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, well, where, where, where would you put this on your uh, lists, do you think? Have you... I did take a look at my list. I think performance-wise, I really love her performance on in this. And so this is really a matter of me just loving other performances better. So I have I have it at 15 right now. Above It's Complicated. Okay. And under Silkwood. But I may move it because I do love it. I just have to see what I'm willing to bump down. Sure. Um, and then film-wise, I think I put it at a little, a little lower at 19, Under the River Wild. Oh, wow. Okay. But that's not because I don't like it. Yeah. 
There's actually, this is very funny. As we make these lists, Zach, there's only there's only a handful of movies I just flat out didn't like. Most of them she's hardly in. And they're at the bottom of the list. And then the rest is just me managing <laughs> me managing my love. <laughs> right. No, that that's good. That's why we that's why we're doing this. I have mine pretty quite a bit higher. Um I I don't know. I felt like um when I was looking at at this it's hard for me to um oh wait maybe i didn't put it anywhere yet for the films i put the performances though um I, so i put it at, at my number 10 for performances for performances yeah because my previous number 10 was the laundromat and i feel like oh. she's better in this than the laundromat so maybe that was my criteria. So I have this in between Kramer and Kramer and the laundromat. Um, I guess I hadn't placed it yet for where I would put it for her films, but I'm moving it on my film list. It's going down right under Mary Poppins returns above Julie and Julia. So that's 16. Number 16 now. All right. Um, let's see for her films. For me, I think I'm going to put this, I'm going to put this 11 after Big Little Lies season two, because again, I had the laundromat at 11 and I feel like this is better than the laundromat. Maybe I had the laundromat too high. <laughs> I have the laundromat at like 22 on my movies list. It's low. <laughs> Maybe I had the laundromat too high, but I'll, you know, <laughs> once, once we get to the end, we can kind of come back. And one of the things that I'm looking forward to, um, not that I'm looking forward to this ending, but you know, like inevitably one of the things I find myself curious about um, are, are going back and assessing like, well, you had this one really high, I had this one really low, and kind of figuring out the movie that had the most kind of disparity between our, yes. our two scores and um, the movies that were the closest, and then maybe even comparing that to like the IMDb ratings, which are kind of like a wide, you know, consensus of, of the population. So, um, but I really, I'm interested in the disparity. I think one of the ones that's in a prime position right now though, is Silkwood because I have that very, very highly rated and you have it very middle of the pack. I do. I so can't I think remember that why. <laughs> um, also, I think what would be really cool is take the, the one with the largest disparity between the two of us and do a rewatch. Sure. Yeah. That would be fun. Yeah. Um, all right, cool. Anything else about Into the Woods you want to talk about? No, I'm good. All right, let's go on to our other segments. Uh, six degrees. I realized, folks, uh, <laughs> because <laughs> today, as we were getting ready, I thought, you know what? I can't remember who we said last time for six degrees. And so I went back and listened to the last five minutes of the last podcast, and we didn't say anybody, we just didn't say so. Um, we're going to skip that segment today, except we're going to we're going to now start a new one for for next time, which will be pretty soon. Do you have anybody in mind for a six degrees person? Um, I recall that I like pulled somebody off the top of my head for last time and then have forgotten who it was. I don't have anybody. What do you think? What should we do? Um, how about uh I'm going to go real random. Amelia Estevez. Emilio Estevez. Sweet. Done. Okay. Um, cool. Movies we wish Meryl was in. Anything come to mind these last couple of weeks? Mm. 
really, I really want to see her in a Marvel movie. I won't lie. Okay. Anyone in particular? That's previously been made that I can think of. Okay. But I would like to see her in a Marvel role. I think it'd be interesting. I mean, the ones with, uh, well, Annette Bening was in something. What? Which one was Annette Bening in? Annette Bening was in a Marvel movie. Wasn't she? Oh gosh. I thought she was. I, I thought she was in a recent one. Um, let me check. I'm trying to think of, uh, well, like Glenn Close was in Guardians of the Galaxy, right? Or was it just a voice? Okay, I think it was just a voice. I don't remember. But I, you know what? I didn't see the second one. Let's see. Annette Bening. Oh, she was in Captain Marvel. I haven't seen Captain Marvel yet. Uh, I mean, that seems like a logical one. That was kind of the one I was thinking. Or, you know, so, Wonder, Woman, Wonder Woman isn't Marvel, right? That's DC or whatever. Yeah. Okay, so take that out. Um, and my answer to your question is I would like to see Meryl Streep in Captain Marvel. There you go. Dr. Wendy Lawson role. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Seeing her (laughs) sooner or later, I think she is going to be in one of those. I think it's just got to be the time is, you know, right. I think it's inevitable. Doesn't it seem like that? Yeah. I mean, I don't know. They've all done one at this point. How about you? I'm going to stick to the Sondheim thing. Um, how about a version of Gypsy? Oh, yeah. She'd be such a good Mama Rose. Yeah. Um, so good. There are a lot of productions of that. Um, mm-hmm. You know, uh, several film adaptations. Um, last I heard, Barbara Streisand was making a Gypsy, which seems to not be a great choice to me. I don't want people on the nose. Yeah. I don't think we need that one. Um, So I I would say um, uh, her, I would also like to see Glenn Close do Gypsy. Like she has the kind of like manic energy. Couldn't she pull that off? Yeah, totally. Um, Yeah. Anyway. So I would like to see her do Gypsy. I think that would be, that would be an interesting um, thing whether yeah. it's on stage or film there have been a lot of a lot of revivals of it even within the last because Bernadette Peters did it after uh Patty LuPone did it so I mean like even within the last few years they, even within the last decade there's been at least two you know pretty big revivals of it so um but for Merrill they might do another revival who knows yeah have you seen Imelda Staunton do it oh no she's great she did it on the west end and they That's I think right. they filmed it for National Theatre Live you can find it on, it used to be on PBS, I think. No, it's very good. She's great in it, too. I believe it. I believe yeah. it. Um, cool. All right. So our next episode, which should be coming at you soon. We're trying to do five in five days. Yeah. What is our next one, Meryl? Manchurian Candidate. I can't wait. Okay. I've already watched it. I probably will watch it again because I love it. Have you watched it yet? No. It's All next. Right. I'm going to watch this night because we're doing this five in five days. That's right. Cool. So we will be back soon, everybody. And uh, we look forward to it. Thanks for listening. We'll see you soon. Bye, everybody. That's all.